The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Um, we're going to talk this morning about audience relevance. Now, this is a subject that is very important to our study of Scripture. I mean, if you want to study the Scripture, you're someone who wants to know a little bit more than your average person. You want to get in there. You want to do some research. You have to understand audience relevance. Now, last week in our study of 1 John, several questions arose about audience relevance in light of verse 28. Now, last week we did verses, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We're backing up, okay? For those of you who missed that. All right, but we're going to focus on audience relevance. It says, Now, little children, abide in him. Little children, as I've been saying, is synonymous with believers. So he is telling believers, abide in him. This is the same thing we see in John 15, where the Lord's talking to his disciples, and he says, Now you're clean. In other words, you're a believer. Abide in me. So believers abide. This is something all believers are called to do. They're called to abide in Christ. Which is more than your casual relationship. Alright? It's spending time in the Word of God. It's loving your brother. It's communing with God. All Christians are called to do this. And and in this text, it's interesting, he says, we're to abide in Him so that. So that what? So that when He appears at His coming, that's talking about the second coming, And so that is a purpose clause. When He appears at the second coming, we're going to have confidence and not shame. Now I said last week, this is talking about the Bema seat judgment. Believers, all believers in my opinion, have to give an account to the Lord for what we have done. We're going to stand before Him someday. This is not a sin judgment. Our sin has been taken away by Christ. We are righteous. All right. This is not a sin judgment. It is basically a reward time, and it's also a time when you're just going to give an account to the Lord for the things you've done. Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. So you're going to receive based on what you've done. Alright? Now that's kind of important that you get that. In the body, whether good or evil. Now last week I said, if we live a life abiding in Him, then when we stand before Him, which I believe happens after our death, when you die, you're going into the eternal realm, you're going to stand before God, and you're going to give an account. And I just wonder, how much do we think about that? That someday we're going to have to stand before the Lord and say, you know, all that He has given us, what have we done with it? All right, several questions arose last week over the issue of Bema Seat Judgment and audience relevance. One was raised right here. Got one online also. Uh, Someone posted this comment on last week's YouTube video. So I wanted to share with you the comment, and then we're going to talk about that. He says this, Hi, I ask this sincerely. Why is audience relevance not used when it is said to them that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ? John was talking to them. He means Paul. But I see this creep in a bit sometimes. Audience relevance 
is main part of preterist teaching, and then other times, like here, David reads it, then looks at his listeners and says to them, they will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What is the method used to determine when it is audience relevant or not? That is an excellent question. That's the same question Cheryl raised last week here. So I want to spend our time this morning trying to answer that question, all right? Let me start by saying that audience relevance is always important and should always be used. Audience relevance is one of the rules of hermeneutics. So let's back up for a minute. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. If we're going to study the Bible, we have to have some understanding of hermeneutics. The purpose of hermeneutics is to establish guidelines and rules for interpreting the Bible. That's because any written document is subject to misinterpretation. And thus we've developed rules to safeguard us from misunderstanding. Yahweh has spoken, and what He has said is recorded in Scripture. Now listen, the basic need of hermeneutics is this. To ascertain what did God mean by what He said. I mean, you can read the Bible and say, God said this. That's right. No one has a problem with that. That's what He said. What does it mean? That's when we get in all kinds of trouble, have all kinds of different ideas. What did it mean? So the basic need of hermeneutics is to ascertain what he meant by what he said. Now, one of the principles, and there's many principles of hermeneutics, we're focusing on one today, is audience relevance. That means, whatever a passage meant, whatever word spoken in Scripture meant, it meant or had direct application to the original intended audience. We all tracking so far? Does that make sense? Okay, when the book was written, it was written to a specific audience. The interpreter's job, that's all of us, we're all the interpreters of Scripture, is to seek to discover what did the original readers understand this to mean. That means we have to try to get ourselves in the mind of the first century Hebrews to understand what does this mean to them. Or the first century audience, whether they be Greek or Hebrews. So the concern of the interpreter is to understand the grammar of a passage in light of the historical circumstances and context of the original audience. Now, there's two extremes when it comes to audience relevance. Some see everything in the Bible as pertaining to them. You understand? You met those people? Everything in the Bible. Have you ever heard the mantra, every promise in the book is mine? You ever heard that? You ever said that? No, it's not. Okay? Every promise in the book is not yours. That's so taken out of context. Let me give you a promise that I've heard taken out of context many times. Okay? Where am I going? Absolutely. Jeremiah 29.11. Okay? For I know the plans that I have for you. Right? Declares Yahweh. Plans for welfare, not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. This has got to be the number one homeschool graduation verse. I mean, I've been to so many graduations and parents get up and they quote this verse. And I sit there and I'm thinking, oh Lord. These are supposed to be Bible-educated people. Okay? But this, this sounds nice, doesn't it? So let's take it, right? Isn't that a comforting verse? It would be, maybe it was in a fortune cookie, okay? But it's not. 
This verse is in the book of Jeremiah, and it must be understood in its context. And here's the interesting thing about this. All you have to do to try to understand this verse, back up one verse. Just one. Okay? So let's do that. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. The same you that's in verse 11. Who's in verse 11? Is this for all, any and all believers? First of all, it's written in the 6th century B.C. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The people had been taken off into captivity into Babylon. And so Yahweh is assuring the exiles of Judah, that's his audience, the exiles that have been taken into Babylon, that his long-term plan for them is good because it didn't seem good to them. Jerusalem's been destroyed. We've been taken off captive as slaves. We're in Babylon. So he's telling them, listen, I haven't abandoned you. I have plans for welfare, not for calamity. The exiles of Judah. To give you a future and a hope. That's encouraging to them. It's not for you. And it's not meant to pull out as a verse all by itself. Look at this. Like I said, fortune cookie. You know, just a little thing here. He says, when 70 years are completed. That's when the promises come into effect. When the 70 years are completed. It was made to the exiles. But it's amazing how many people just pull verses out. They get some comfort out of them, so they make them apply to themselves. Totally ignoring the principle of audience relevance, notice what one pastor wrote. He says, you know, the Bible is timeless. Let's look at these scriptures as though Paul had sent an email to the Neptune Church of God. Here's the thing, people. Holding this view will totally keep you from understanding the Bible. But I think, again, my opinion, most Christians look at the Bible that way. Like it just arrived in the mail. And they sit down and they read Revelation. Look at this stuff's going to happen soon. Yeah, but you're not the original audience. So if you want to understand it, just think of what was written 2,000 years ago to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Oh, it had a context, it had an audience. It makes a difference. We must understand that if we disengage the original audience from the Scriptures, we can make a passage say whatever we want it to say. Make them apply to whatever we want to apply to. Whenever we read the Scriptures, we need to ask ourselves, who is this person talking to or writing directly to? That's where we have to start. We need to remember the Bible is a collection of personal letters and history books written by real people to real people in real time with real context. For instance, in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul wrote, writes this, I hope in the Lord Yeshua to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Does this verse teach us that we're supposed to be waiting for Timothy? Well, according to what the pastor of the Neptune Church of God said, he says, let's look at these scriptures as though Paul had just sent an email to the Neptune Church of God. So we just got this email this morning, and he says he hopes to send Timothy. So I'm like, I guess we should wait for him. But you know, here's the thing. I would dare say that even the pastor of the Neptune Church, God wouldn't take this as applying to them. He would get that, well, no, this is not to us. 
But isn't it funny? Nobody is expecting Timothy to come soon. Today. But everybody today is still expecting Yeshua to come soon. Why? Is soon different with Timothy? It's the same word. Again, it's it's crazy. We just don't seem to can't seem to put the scripture into its context. We're not waiting for Timothy because we correctly understand audience relevance, right? And that this is a personal letter from Paul to a real church in Philippi in 62 AD about an event sending Timothy that was eminent to them, not us. We correctly understand the time and the place context. The first century Philippian Christians are the intended audience of this book. Now, all the time statements in the Bible must be viewed through this lens of audience relevance. The books of the Bible are not mystical letters written to nebulous Christians throughout eternity. All right? Whereby all time statements are free, can be extracted and applied to whatever generation you wish. You know, that's to this generation, that's to that generation, this is to me. Each book was directed to a specific audience, and Scripture is more than adequate to show us who that audience is. Now, this may perhaps shock some people, but there is no one book in the Bible that was written to anyone living today. You got that? I know that, you know, that shock. Some people want to fight over that. I mean, seriously, I know people want to fight over that. There's no book that says to the Christians in Virginia Beach, welcome. Greetings, in the name of our Lord Yeshua. No, why isn't that there? Because it's not written to us. Every single book of the Bible is written, listen, for us. And that's important. It is for us. For application, for understanding, but none of them are written to us. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, what, for teaching? for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the Word of God will equip you for everything because it is Scripture. You know, when he says all Scripture, what's he referring to here? Right, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Because why? The New Testament wasn't written yet. Okay, but, don't say, so you're saying, okay, well, the Old Testament's inspired, but the New is not. No, that's not true. All right. When Peter was writing his letter, Peter said he considered what Paul wrote in the New Testament to be Scripture. Peter calls Paul's writing Scripture. So when the Bible says all Scripture, old and new, it's all inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It's the very breath of God. That means through the Holy Spirit, God revealed Himself and His plans to particular individuals, and these people wrote it down. Now listen, we're not talking about mechanical dictation. Okay, like the writers sat down and they went into a trance and their hand just started moving and they just wrote out and they looked at it and said, that's amazing, look what I just wrote. No, God used them, their personalities, their circumstances, their lives, and He inspired them to put this thing together. And they wrote it. The claim of the Bible is that God's in control of its writing. All right, so every book in the Bible was written for us. For application, for understanding, none of them are written to us. Every book in the Bible is a personal letter, a history book, a writing by a prophet or particular people at a particular time and for a particular reason. Yes, we do glean truth. We glean understanding from these books today. 
But that's a far different than saying these books were written to us. To put it another way, we're reading other people's mail. Okay? We are. And we have to take into consideration what did it mean to them. Whenever someone today says, here's what this Scripture means to me, you know what I say? Who cares? Who cares what it means to you? What does it mean to the people to whom it was written? That's what's important. That's really the only thing that matters. Once we find that out, then we can apply it to ourselves if it has application. Everything doesn't have application. All right, so we got some people saying everything in the Bible pertains to them. All the promises in the book are mine. It's all written to me, and everything's pertinent to me. Totally ignoring the principle of audience relevance. We have some people, on the other hand, who take the principle of audience relevance to a place where, listen, none of the Bible applies to them. So you got these extremes. Everything's ours, none of it's ours. These people say the Bible was written solely and entirely to the nation Israel. They accuse us of using audience relevance only for the time statements. One of these folks says, amazing how people play lip service to audience relevance and then ignore the meaning completely. What they mean is to them, the Bible isn't relevant at all to today's audience. And if you hold that view, go about your business. Because you got no business here. Okay? You seriously don't. If none of it's to you, none of it's for you, put it aside and go on. Why waste your time? Because they say none of it's written to us, none of it's for us, none of it applies to us. Really? That's kind of a silly position. Especially someone who's reading their Bible. <laughs> you know? Let's go back to our Philippians text. Paul's hoping to send Timothy soon. Right? This doesn't apply to us. Timothy is not coming shortly here. You know why? Dust. He's dead and he's dust. All right, He's been dead for thousands of years. Two thousand years since Paul wrote this. Okay, well let's try another one. What about this one? Philippians 4, 2 and 3. I entreat Yodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Is this to us? Well, anybody here named Yodia or Syntyche? Clement's dead. They're all dead. All right. How would you like to be in the Philippian church? And you're sitting there, we've got a letter from Paul Blitz, and they're reading it, and all of a sudden, I beseech Yodia, I beseech... And you ladies are trying to hide, you know, like, calling out my name. I'm glad the Scripture's done being written. <laughs> This was specific to the local situation. He's telling these women, you women need to get together. You need to agree on these things. You need to work this thing out. Now, we could take this and I think make some application. God has a heart for unity. All through the Scriptures, we're, we're encouraged to, to walk in unity. And that's what he's telling these ladies, to walk together in unity. So maybe we could pull a principle out of this. All right, let's try another one. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does this apply to us? Paul's talking, first of all, about himself, right? He's saying what he can do. So is this maybe just for apostles? I don't think so. I think this could apply to us if you're in Christ and if you're living in dependence upon Christ. See, most of the teaching, now, believers, listen to me here. Brilliance, pay attention. Most of the teaching, most of the teaching, 
Most of the teaching you find in the New Testament is directed to the church at large. First century, second century, whatever century. It's directed to the church. And if you're part of the church, it is application for you. All right? I think that's really important. All right? So this verse, can we do all things through Christ? Can we leap tall buildings at a single bow? Can we run faster than a speeding bullet? Okay, Cheryl wants me to back up. So let's back up. <clears throat> this context thing is amazing, isn't it? What does he mean he can do everything in Christ? Well, here's what he says. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. All right. Paul had a real close relationship with the Philippian church. I mean, he was in love with these people. This is basically a love letter to the Philippian church thanking them for an offering they gave him. That's what this letter is all about. So he says, not that I speak in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Well, that's a great lesson, right? <laughs> how can you lose when, that, when you learn that situation and learn that lesson? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hungry, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ. So the all things he can do, he says, I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. Let me tell you people, abounding can be more difficult than being brought low. When you're brought low, every focus in your thought is on God. Oh, I need you, God, help me. When you're abounding, it's like, I got this, God. Stand back and watch me go. So it could be more difficult. But he says, I can do either one of those. He says, I can face plenty or I can face hunger. You know what he's saying? Because of my dependence on Christ, because of my relationship with Christ, I can do all things. I can deal with all the circumstances that life brings because of my relationship with Christ. This is spiritual truth, believers, that applies to all of us who live in dependence upon Christ. Believers, we can apply these spiritual truths to ourselves as the church because I don't think there's anything time or audience specific in these events. And that's what we always have to ask ourselves. Is this time specific? Is this audience specific? Or is this dealing with the church? And Paul's just saying, listen, when you live your life in dependence on Christ and whatever life brings, you can deal with it. Did Paul, was Paul able to flesh this out? Absolutely. I don't care what you brought to him. He was like, that's cool. God's in control. He was a single-minded man. There's no doubt about that, all right? So the people who are saying that since none of the Bible is written to us, none of it applies to us, they're wrong. Okay? They're wrong. They say it's all about Israel. It's about Israel's sin. It's about Israel's salvation. It's about Israel's Messiah. These folks go far, so far to say sin was done away in AD 70 and we don't sin today. Therefore, we don't need salvation. Christ did not die for our sin. It was all about Israel. And they will quote a verse like this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. And they say, who's his people? It's Israel. It's the Jews, right? And you're not a Jew, so he didn't save you, they'll say. Well, who are his people? Well, Israel's definitely his people, no doubt about that. And I agree that the Bible deals with Israel and their salvation and their sin. But let me add to this. 
it also deals with true Israel. Okay, Israel was a type. The church is the anti-type. We are Israel. We are true Israel. And so if it is dealing with that, which I think it is, then it applies to us. Alright, look at Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly. How else would you be a Jew except outwardly? I mean, it was, you know, it was a physical thing, right? Nor is circumcision outward. What? What do you mean circumcision outward isn't physical? What else is it if it's not that? Okay? But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. You know Paul saying, hey, this, this stuff about being a Jew, being about an Israelite, this is spiritual, people. Okay? This is spiritual. No one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly. A Jew is one inwardly. He's making a distinction between outward physical, inward spiritual. The outward Jew is a transgressor of Torah. Why? Because ever since Christ came, if you reject Him, you're no longer a Jew. You're Antichrist. You're rejecting the Son of God. Once He showed up, those Jews, those Jews that were people of God, they either accepted the Messiah because the whole Tanakh had taught about Him. They either accepted Him or they were no longer Jews anymore. They were just Jews outwardly. It's all about faith in the Messiah. Once the New Covenant arrived, people, the only true Jews were those who trusted Christ. All other Jews are covenant breakers and God-rejectors. Okay? Because if you reject Christ, you don't have the Father. Alright? In this context, Paul uses Jew as the people of God. Those chosen by Him. Those shown God's favor and those in covenant with God. That's who the Jew is. In covenant with God. Now the point of verse 29 is that the Holy Spirit is the one who makes uncircumcised Gentiles into circumcised Jews, namely by circumcising their hearts. Spiritual. Circumcision, Paul says, in essence, is an internal change of heart, not an external change to the sexual organ. What Paul says here in Romans, he says throughout the New Testament. And one of my favorite verses dealing with this, we'll go back to Philippians, this little love letter Paul writes. Paul says, for we are the circumcision. We. Who's the we? Well, himself and his audience, the Philippians, that's who the we, that's the reference, the Philippian Christians. But what he says to them, listen, it's true of all Christians. There's no reason to limit what Paul says here to only the Philippian church. There's nothing time-sensitive here. There's nothing audience-sensitive you know, that can only apply to them. Theologically, this is very significant. This is Paul's description of the church of Christ. The church is the circumcision. Now, what's interesting about this you read that, and you, you probably skim over because it doesn't mean a lot. But listen, as this was developed down through history of Israel, even at the time of the Lord, the circumcision is a technical designation for Israel. The children of Israel. Jews were synonymously called the circumcision. There's many passages in the book of Acts, and some in Paul's letters, in which instead of saying Israel, instead of saying the Jews, he would just say the circumcision. Because that was a designation. So it was a way of saying Israelites are Jews. The term the circumcision is the technical designation for Israel and the significance of this can't be lost on these verses. Let's back up a verse. Paul says, look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for the mutilate, those who mutilate the flesh. 
Look out, he says, three times. These are all imperatives. He's saying, be on your constant lookout for dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. He has one hostile group in mind. He's talking about the Judaizers. Watch out for them. They were a group of people that went around in the first century promoting Judaism. They said, oh, you believe in Christ? That's okay, but it's not enough. You also have to be circumcised. You also have to keep the law. Or you just can't get in. They were pushing Judaism on the believers. They're confusing the church. They were saying, in order to be a Christian, you have to first come through the door of Judaism. You must be circumcised. You must keep the law. Now, the word mutilate here is the Greek word katatome. And there's a pun here in the Greek, which you don't see in the English, but the word circumcised in verse 3 is paratome. Paratome means to cut around. Okay, circumcised, cut around. Katatome means to cut off or mutilate. So Paul's saying, you know who you guys are? You're the mutilators. You Judaizers, you're the mutilators. That was a that was so circumcision was so important to Israel. But Paul said that means nothing now. You're just mutilating. All right? All you're doing is physically mutilating your bodies. There's no spiritual significance. You Jews think you're circumcised? You're just mutilated. You might as well go ahead and cut it off, is what he's saying. All right? This word katatome is used in the Septuagint of the pagan cuttings of the body that were forbidden, forbidden by the law of Israel. They're cuttings, you know? You're not supposed to do that. They're mutilating themselves. So who is the circumcision? Paul tells them in verse 3, it's those who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ, that's Messiah, Christ, Yeshua, and put no confidence in the flesh. If there's one thing a Jew did, it was confidence what? In the flesh. I'm of Israel. I'm of the tribe, this tribe, that tribe. You know, it's all bragging about their flesh. People, this is the church. This is Christians. This is true believers. Paul is saying the church is the true circumcision. It is the true Israel. It is the true Jew. Now someone's going to ask, well, isn't a Jew someone who descended physically from Abraham? And as a sign of his covenant relationship with God, had the mark of circumcision? Well, Paul seems to be telling us that true circumcision is not determined by ethnic derivation. It is determined by the, not by the blood flowing through your veins, but rather the faith that's in your heart. It's all about the heart, he says. Paul taught that the Gentiles and the church shared in the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant with Israel. Galatians 3.16 now, the promises were made to Abraham. That's the Abrahamic covenant. You can go back and read them. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. It does not say, and to offsprings, that's plural, referring to like all his descendants, the many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. All right. So the promises were made to Abraham and Abraham's seed, who's Christ. So the promise made to Abraham and to Christ. Got that? He is Israel. Alright? Look at 329. If you are Christ, by faith, then you're Abraham's offspring. We sang that yesterday. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Listen, you are a son of Abraham if you believe in Christ. You're Abraham's offspring. Legitimately, truly, biblically his offspring. Your heirs according to the promise that God made to Abraham. You inherit that promise. Now, is the you here limited to those in Galatia in the first century? 
Well, is there anything in the text that is time or audience specific? No, there's not. If you by faith belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed, you're heirs according to promise. It doesn't matter whose blood you have in your veins, it's whose faith you have in your heart. It's covenant, not race, that makes one a Jew. This is an amazing verse that you have to understand in Romans 9, 6. It is not as though the Word of God failed. Why does he say the Word of God? Why, why would the Word of God fail? It's because everyone knew that Israel were God's people. And now God was setting them aside. And they're like, oh, the promises failed. No, they didn't fail. See, they're misunderstood. Because not all who were descended from Israel belong to Israel. So not all Israel is Israel. You got that? Okay? I can't emphasize enough how important this verse is. It's key to understanding Israel and the promises of God. The term Israel means God rules or he who rules with God. And what Paul tells us in the text, there's two Israels, people. There's a national, physical Israel, Jacob's sons. There's no disagreement there. Who's the other Israel? This is where the disagreements start. We have here physical Israel, those who descended from Jacob, and then you have true Israel, those who are in Christ. So we have physical Israel and true Israel. Who's the true Israel? It's the church. It's all who trust in Christ. Because Christ is Israel. It's the body of Christ. And what I want to understand is that Yeshua is the true Israel. It is in Him and Him alone that the promises of God are fulfilled. We could say they are not all in Christ who are physically descended from Jacob. They're not. See, just because they came from that bloodline, once a new covenant was in, once Christ came, it's like, you either trust Him. I thought my time was up. Cool. Scare me. <laughs> So this is so important, people. Two Israels. Physical Israel. And it seemed like the promises to physical Israel had failed. But the promises were to the true Israel. And people are still confused on this today. And they're hoping for something for physical Israel. Oh, they've got to get the land. They've got to get the... They're done. God is done with them. Shut them down in AD 70. Alright? Look at Galatians 3.14. And that in Christ Yeshua, the blessing of Abraham... Abraham a covenant might come to the Gentiles. What? How do they get in on that? So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Listen, to those people who are saying none of the promises are to us because they're all to Israel, let me tell you something. When God disinherited the nations, okay, in Genesis 10 and 11, when He disinherited the nations, the very next thing He did was call Abraham. And as soon as He called Abraham, He says, I'm going to use you to bless all the nations. So it's like, God was focusing on the nations the second He disinherited them. I'm going to bring them back. So we, you, me, us, all of us, all believers, inherit the promises made to Abraham through Christ. Everything we are, everything we have is by virtue of the union we have with Christ that comes by faith. Now listen carefully. The Abrahamic covenant was a promise made to Abraham and to Yeshua, the seed of Abraham. That he would be made great, he would be the father of many nations, and that in him would all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's in Christ. The promises were fulfilled spiritually and ultimately in Christ. Believers, we are Israel. And many of the promises and precepts in the Word of God apply to us as God's children. 
Now, one thing that's really important in understanding audience relevance is the transition period. If you don't understand the transition period, you're going to be off base as far as knowing what time it is and knowing what scriptures apply to you and what don't. And most believers don't understand that we live in a different age than the New Testament authors did. Charity, put me full screen, will you? All right. Now, let me say this first. I'm going to go through several slides here in the transition period. If you have a question, raise your hand and let's deal with it right now while I got the slides up so we can talk about this because this is fundamental, all right? We saw last week that the Scriptures speak of two ages, right? This age, oh, it doesn't look good on that. This age and the age to come, all right? Two ages. When did they change? Now, here's what most believers think. Most believers think, okay, we're in the Old Covenant, and then Christ showed up, we could say the cross or Pentecost, pick one, it's only 50 days difference, pick one, you know which one you want, either one of those, and then all of a sudden, we stepped across, now we're in the New Age. Most people think that's what happened. That's not what happened. And we need to understand when they change and how they change if you're going to un understand Scripture. So let me show you this slide. All right. Now we got 40 years there. Okay? The ages didn't change at a point in time. There was a 40 year period of transition. We're going from one to the other. It starts at Pentecost. You see, the green is the Old Covenant age. And it. Nothing but Old Covenant age until we get to Pentecost. And now you see at the bottom, you see just a little bit of blue, and the blue starts expanding. And then we get to 70 AD, and you see there's no more green. That 40 years, we have a transition taking place. We're moving from one to the other. And this age, the Bible talks about this age, this age goes all the way through that transition period to AD 70. All the way through. That's all called, when the Bible writers write this age, that's the age they're talking about. This age doesn't go past to the age to come. Alright, it stops. This is all called the transition period. It's a time of change. It's a time of growth. It's a time of moving from one covenant to the other. The New Testament writers wrote all their material in this period. All this material. Now, some people argue about that and they say, oh, this was written in 90. You know it wasn't. Okay, everything was written in this period. All right, that's when they wrote. That's the age they lived in. That's what the Bible calls the last days. Okay, this age. All that is this age, and it's called the last days. And you see where the last days end? AD 70. There's no more green past that because that's it. It's done. When you get to AD 70, we're in the new covenant. We're in the age to come. That's it. So that's where we live. We live over here, the little X. So you get confused of where you are, all right? Like if you're at the mall and you don't know where you're at. This is more important than being at the mall and not knowing where you're at, okay? So I want you to take a picture of this or whatever, and next time you get confused, you can go and look at the X and say, oh, that's where I am. I'm in the new covenant. I'm in the age to come. All right? And if you don't understand the transition period, you won't understand what age you're living in. Because the writers, they write and they say, in this age, and you say, yeah, this age is this age. No. No, no, no. This age was that age. You're in the age to come. You're in a different age. 
Alright? Very important to our understanding. Because if you don't understand where you are, you're going to be in trouble. This 40-year period from Pentecost to Holocaust was a time of transition from the Old to the New Covenant. Now, here's something we've got to try to understand. You'll hear biblical writers often talk about the already but not yet. Have you heard that term? Everybody heard that term? The already but not yet. In other words, it's already, but it's not yet. And you're like, what the heck? Some of the screws loose. No, we got the already but not yet. Because see, in this 40-year period, they had things in a down payment form. They weren't completed. They weren't finalized then. They were going to be at 8070, but they were already theirs because it couldn't be revoked because he had God had given them the Holy Spirit as a promise, saying, I'm going to give you this. It just can't happen until 8070, until Christ comes back out of heaven fulfilling the promises. So this is so important that now you're going to read all kinds of writers and they go, they'll they'll read you something in the Bible, and they go, Well, this is the already but not yet. Here's what you have to understand. The already but not yet is in that 40-year period and it doesn't go anywhere else. If you take it outside that period, you're going to be all confused on what the Bible's talking about. That is the only place the already is not yet is justified. It's got to stay there. The new covenant's inaugurated. It is not consummated. We looked at this a little bit last week. We'll look at it a little bit more. All right, Charity, if you can put me back to a regular screen. Appreciate it. All right, Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Who's the we here? Well, it's Paul in the New Testament saints at Ephesus. That's who he's writing to, right? Does this apply to us? Well, let me ask you, is there anything here that is time or audience specific? Well, this is written in the transition period. We have to keep that in mind. Paul talks about redemption here like they had it. It's a present possession. That's what he says. We have redemption, right? So you read it and you go, they had redemption. Well, notice what he says a few verses later. This will get your head spinning. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So you believed and you were sealed. Watch, who's the guarantee of our inheritance, when? Until we acquire possession of it. What? You don't have it yet. To the praise of His glory. So here we see the Holy Spirit's a guarantee, the Holy Spirit's a promise in view of something, the redemption, that was not yet. Paul had said it was already, in Him you have redemption, but now he's saying it's not yet. And that's because they're in the transition period. Ephesians 4.30 and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, that redemption is coming. They're going to get it. They're sealed, but they don't have it yet. They're sealed for the day, the future day. So this is, the redemption was not yet. But in Colossians, Paul says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So again, do we have it or do we not have it? Listen, it's important, people. People use these verses to argue against the inspiration of Scripture. Listen, because they say, which is it? Did they have it or did they not have it? You can't have it and not have it. Okay? The second law of logic is the law of contradiction. It can't be A and not A at the same time. Okay? So you can't have it and not have it. Well, 
They had it because it was promised them. They, in other words, they really didn't have it, but it's promised. And so, because God promised, they're going to get it. Okay? Because God doesn't go back on His promises. So they actually didn't have redemption, but He talks about it like they did because they're going to have it. Alright? The already but not yet. And that's why people argue. They say, oh, see, this is confusing here. God, it's not inspired. They see it as a contradiction because they don't understand the transition period. They had the promises. They had the Holy Spirit to guarantee, but they waited for the consummation. Redemption was still a hope for them until AD 70 in the consummation of all that they were promised. They lived, the transition generation lived in hope. And we talked last week, you don't hope for what you already have. Okay, you hope for what you don't have. And they hope for, we looked at this last week, they hope for righteousness, they hope for salvation, they hope for eternal life, they hope for the return of Christ. The return of Christ was called the blessed hope because all they hoped for would be fulfilled when He came. Their transition period was an age of hope. They hoped for what they didn't see. They hoped for the completion of their redemption. Now there are some who think everything was completed in the death of Christ on the cross in AD 30. The New Testament makes it so clear it's not finished. They don't see a transition period. They don't see an already but not yet. And I guess I see that as a non-biblical position. Because this whole transition period, we're moving. We're changing. The church is growing. Look last week, the many Scriptures that pointed to a future to them fulfillment. He said eternal life would be in the age to come. They didn't have it yet. What was happening during the transition period? Well, the church is growing. It's growing from infancy to maturity. God was building a new temple to dwell in. And guess who that new temple is? It's us. We are sacred space. We're the dwelling of God. A spiritual house. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Yeshua Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. You ever see any buildings grow? They add on, but those just don't grow, right? But here, the structure is growing, and it's growing into a temple in the Lord. Watch. In Him you also are, present tense, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God was building a new temple. And the temple was growing. He says, growing into a holy temple, the present tense verb along with the preceding participle shows that the continuance of growth process indicating a living organism that continues to increase. It's not future tense looking forward to some eschatological temple here. All right, It's present tense dealing with the present temple that's not finished is still growing. Now, the Greek for, for temple here is naos, which is used of the inner sanctuary. That's where God dwells. The Holy of Holies. That's what God's building. A new Holy of Holies. Okay, We are not the outer court. We're not the temple in general. We are the very dwelling place of God. Believers were becoming the temple of God. Charity, we go back to full screen? <clears throat> Alright. 
Watch this. We got these two ages here. They're changing in the middle in that 40 year period. And this is Ephesians. You also, he says, are being built together into a dwelling place. It started out very small there, and it's getting larger and larger until past AD 70. Old covenant is gone. We're there where the X is. Okay? We are now, the temple's built, the temple's finished. We're now the dwelling place of God. All right, charity back to other screen. 2 Corinthians 6, watch what Paul says here. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We, as God said, I will make them my dwelling among them, I will walk among them, I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. This hadn't happened yet, people. God hadn't indwelt the temple yet. Look what Peter said about this temple. He says, you are come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up, present tense, as a spiritual house. This house is being built during this transition period to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Yeshua the Christ. Anybody know what these spiritual sacrifices are that we offer? Anybody know one of them that we offer? Thanksgiving, thank you. That is a sacrifice. Listen, when you are thankful, that's a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice to God. When you're thankful to Him for what you have. And it's amazing, you know. When God shows you who He is, and when you understand who you are and who God is, your heart should be overflowed with thankfulness. They're being built up to a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The church is a temple, and the temple was being built during that transition period. So during the transition period, the church is growing into a dwelling place for Yahweh. During this time, the Old Covenant is growing old. Look at Hebrews 8.13. And speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. That's the Old Covenant, right? First one. New Covenant, Old Covenant obsolete. Now watch what He says. What is becoming obsolete, present tense, right now, Paul's writing this. I mean, no, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, but that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> what becomes obsolete? I think Barnabas wrote it. <laughs> and growing old is ready to vanish away. This was about 35 years into the transition period. That curtain was torn way back when, 35 years ago. And he says, it's becoming obsolete. In other words, it's not obsolete yet. It's ready to vanish away. It hasn't. They're still offering sacrifices in the temple. It's not obsolete. It's not obsolete until God says, you're not offering sacrifices anymore because there's no more temple. Guess what? They can't do it. It's gone. He shut it down. He made it really clear what His will was and His desire was. So in order to understand the New Testament, we need to understand the transition period. It began at Pentecost. It ended with the destruction of Jerusalem at the Lord's return. One more time, Charity. Back to full screen. All right. So you got, you're being built into a dwelling place of God. That's Ephesians. Then Hebrews says, growing old and ready to vanish away. And you see where the green ended? It's vanished. It's done. It's gone. That age is over. The transition period was the last days of the Old Covenant. The New Covenant was gaining power. It was awaiting the appropriate time to assume full power. During this transition period, the church is growing. It's maturing. They look forward to the return of Christ. The resurrection. The judgment. 
They look forward to God dwelling with them. People, we today are not living in an age of hope. We're not living in an age of already, not yet. Alright? Christ has returned. The resurrection is past. The judgment of God's enemies, the Jews, is over. And God now dwells with us. Alright, look at this screen here. We got, there's just a little bit of it. You see the Old Covenant's got a little teeny bit left, right? It terminates in AD 70. That's it. And that's clear because it's gone. Okay? Since AD 70, the Jews have never offered a sacrifice. Sacrifice was the fundamental part of that whole system. You had to offer sacrifice because it all pointed to Christ. But guess what? Christ has been the sacrifice and so it's done. No more of that. And they haven't offered since then. They totally revamped Judaism they, and they reinvented it. They said, we've got to go on. We have no temple. We have no priesthood. We have nothing, but we'll just go on and make it something different. And they don't offer sacrifices. It ended there. All right, it ended at the second coming. Christ returned, as He said He would, in AD 70, soon, quickly, shortly, while some of you were standing there, this generation, that's when He returned. And then this, the new covenant is expanding, ever expanding and going out since AD 70. And in that new covenant, it's the new heavens and the new earth. That's what that area is. That's where you are. All right, it's the new Jerusalem. It is Mount Zion, the city of the living God. That's where we dwell. I should have put an X there. You are here. That's where we're at, okay? We're there right now. All of us, every one of us are there. We're dwelling in the new heavens and new earth. Old covenant is gone. It's out of sight. It's done. All right, Charity, last time. Back to regular screen. All right, Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Paul, or John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Judaism is done. It's gone. Wiped out. Alright? Passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. God Himself will be their God. The dwelling place of God is with man. That is the blessing of the new covenant. That's the blessing of the age to come. But see, so many people think we're still in the transition period. Most Authors today, most Christians today think that transition period has been at least 2,000 years. People, we are the new Jerusalem. We are the bride of Christ. The church has reached maturity. The transition is over. Yeshua, the Father, the Spirit, they moved in the house. And we're the house. They moved in. They live here now. We don't need a temple. We don't need any of the rituals and ceremonies of the Old Covenant. Because we dwell with God. We are in His presence now. We are in His presence forevermore. May God help us to fully understand and appreciate our position in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells and where God dwells with His people. I think that most Christians today would think God dwells with us. What they don't get is that doesn't happen until the new heavens and new earth. That's what the Scripture says. He doesn't move in until the temple's finished. The temple's built. Now, the reason this is so important to understand the transition period is because many things happened during that time that don't apply to us. They were specific for them. 
And if we don't understand this, we'll have trouble interpreting and applying the teaching of the New Testament. We need to apply the spiritual truths to ourselves. But the time and the audience-specific events, we need to realize that was specifically for them. This is audience-specific. This is time-specific. Alright, with all that, let's go back to Bema. Alright, 2 Corinthians 5.10 We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So does this apply to us or not? Well, will all believers' works be judged by the Lord or only the Corinthians? You can say, those Corinthians were messed up. They, they needed to be judged. This is not a judgment, though, of sin. Bema is a reward platform. It's a raised platform that you stood up and received your medal. First place, second place. You've seen it in the Olympics. They get up on that raised, their raised platform. That's the Bema. All right? Is there anything in this verse that's audience-specific or time-specific? No, you're all going to appear. The only time-specific thing is it's not going to happen until after the Lord returns. All right? Yeshua taught this same thing. He told His disciples there's going to be a judgment. Matthew 16. He says, the Son of Man is going to come. So He hasn't yet. He's going to come with His angels and the glorious Father. And what's He going to do? He's going to repay each person according to what they've done. Each person according to what they've done. When does the repayment occur according to what we said here? After the second coming. He's got to come first. So that's a time indicator that has to happen before the Bema. Yeshua told the seven churches in Asia Minor, He says, I'm coming quickly. Just kidding. A couple thousand years later. No, He meant it. He's coming quickly. He said, my recompense is with me. I'm going to repay each one for what He's done. Paul told the Romans and the Corinthian believers, each of us will give an account. Each one may receive what He's done in the body for what He's done. Lazarus told his readers in 2.28, when he appears, we're going to have confidence, not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So it seems to me that the beam of judgment was a truth taught to the church. And it seems to me that it's a truth that is timeless. All believers, not just first century believers, will stand before the beam We know that the beam of judgment couldn't take place until after the second coming. But we know that's already happened. So we also know that the believers living at the time of the second coming, listen, they didn't face the Bema seat judgment until they died physically. They had to physically die to be judged because when the Lord returned, they didn't, He didn't come on some cloud and sit down and say, okay, everybody line up here. We're going to straighten this. No. It wasn't until their death that they moved in the eternal realm of heaven. They got before God and gave an account. We also know, all right, they had to die. That's, had, the Lord had to come. They had to die. So to say that the Bema was a judgment that only took place in AD 70, in my opinion, is wrong. Because in AD 70, the only people that were judged were those who were already dead. The living, they might have lived 20 years longer. They didn't see the Lord. They didn't stand judged until they died. At death, they were judged. I see it as an ongoing judgment then, obviously. okay, It's not a one-time thing. Boom, everybody line up. We'll get you all one time. No. You're, this is an individual thing. You're facing. You're before your Savior. Can you imagine walking up before the Savior? It's just you and Him. Whew. Will I stand? Will I dance before you, Lord, or to my knees will I fall? I can't imagine doing anything but falling on my face and 
crying out, thank you. Why would we be excluded from this judgment after death today? Paul says, okay, you first century people, you're all going to be judged. And then on, again, the past. Don't even worry about it. You don't even have to look at me. No, we're going to go to heaven and be with him. We must all appear. What would exclude us from this? To me, there has to be something in the text that you can say, okay, this shows that we're exempt from this. I don't see it, people. These verses address the church. Universal. Now the questioner asked, what is audience relevant? Why is audience relevance not used when it is said to them, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ? John was talking to them. Yes, and again, he means Paul. Paul was talking to them. Just as in every verse of the Bible is directed to a specific audience. But he was talking to them as believers. He was talking to them as the church. And what he said to them, I think, applies to all those in the church, all believers. Why would some believers face the Bema and others not face it? Again, give me some scripture to show me why not. Let's look at one more verse. Okay, Acts 16, 30, 31. Then he brought them out and said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Yeshua and you will be saved. You and your household. The Philippian jailer asked Paul how to be saved. And Paul says, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. Is this just to the Philippian jailer? Does this apply to other people besides the Philippian jailer? Well, you could run through Scriptures and see Paul told everybody this. The Lord told everybody this. This is a truth for the church. It's not specific to that individual. He was told that individual because that's how everybody used to get saved. Alright? That's a universal truth taught without throughout the New Testament. Whoever believes in the Lord will be saved. Alright. So some see everything in the Bible as pertaining to them. They ignore audience relevance totally. It's just every promise in the book is mine. It's all about me. It's all for me. It's all mine. And some take the principle of audience relevance to say, none of it applies to me. None of it's mine. None of it's for me. None of, it's all for Israel. I'm going to go with the first group first. I'd rather have some things apply to me. You know, like I said, the second group, if you're part of the second group, throw your Bible away, go about your business. If none of it applies to you, why are you wasting your time? And in between, that's where we're at, okay, hopefully. We're in between, right? In between those two, two views are 11,000 views, okay? A variance of which Scripture is for us and which is not for us. And believers, how do we tell? Which one's for us? Which one's for not? We need to be Bereans. And we need to look at the context. We need to look at the language. We need to look at the cultural setting and figure out why does he say this to them? And then once we understand why he says it to them, does it apply to us? Is he speaking to the church? Or is he speaking to something specific for them? We need to be Bereans. We want to be in between these two views and understand what is it saying to me? After I understand what it said to the original audience. How do I apply this? The only answer I have is be a Berean. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your grace to us, Lord. I thank You for the privilege, the awesome, incredible privilege we have, Lord, to have the Scriptures at our disposal. So many translations, so many study aids, so many guides, Lord, we can learn if we're willing to study. Give us the heart of Bereans, Lord. Help us to hold Your Word in such high esteem that we want to handle it accurately. We want to apply these texts that are for the church to ourselves and live them out to honor and glorify You. 
Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Amen. You know, in the New Testament, Paul is setting up churches. He, he writes to Ephesus and tells them, you know, I want you to ordain some elders in there. Here's the qualifications. Titus is on the Isle of Crete. He's setting up elders. I want you guys to do this. You know, this is in the transition period. And then people say at 80, 70, it's all done. There's no more churches. No more. And I'm like, that seems like a waste to get these churches set up and running. And then, okay, we're done. Go home. It's all over. No, he set them up because this was how it was supposed to be. That's why he gave qualifications for elders and pastors. Because it wasn't going to end right there. They're going to have to go on. If it was going to end right there, he wouldn't need to go beyond the apostles and their delegates. But it was going to go beyond that. So he set up the churches. This is what I want. Go on. All right, questions, comments? Cheryl, did that help at all? Well, I think that could be a general statement there. Everybody's going to die, and after that, yes, they're going to be judged. They're either the term there is not bema in that text. Okay, the unbelievers are facing judgment. All right, they're experiencing the wrath of God. They're done. Okay. But believers also have to face a judgment, but not a judgment of sin because Christ bore our sin. It's a judgment of what have you done with the life I gave you. It's just an answering. It's accountability. Gary? Um, when you were talking about the already and not yet, I was thinking of about applying for a loan and getting approved for the loan. So I had the loan, but I don't yet have the money. I have the cash. Okay, that's a good illustration. You apply for the loan, they say, yes, you can have the money. You don't have the money, you can't spend the money, you got to get the check, okay? But you're approved. Or you've been approved to buy this house. The house yours? Not yet. It's going to take a while till you can actually get in it. But you know, if you got the money and the loan's secure and you get the closing, you're waiting for closing. You're going to go to it, all right? That's what happened here. These, listen, when God said, you've been redeemed, in other words, he's saying, you're going to be redeemed because this is going to happen. Now, we read those texts, in Him we have redemption. It's done. We're there. It's for us, yes. We're redeemed already by the blood of Christ. No waiting. It's done. Transition is over. This, this is really a problem, people, because like I said, talk to, talk to your friends, okay, about this whole thing. Find out what age they think you're living. <laughs> think that where they are, what applies to them, what doesn't apply to them. And you're going to see that they're living, most Bible commentaries are living in the, this age. They're still in the transition. They don't send them that map. So you are here, okay? <laughs> Anthony? So, speaking of what <laughs> Gavin just said, uh, in the transition part, you know, I cut my hair off, I'm bald. Right. I didn't notice that. But in transition, I'm ready now. My hair will grow back. Okay. You know, right. I'm, I'm hoping for afro. <laughs> so my hair is going to grow back, though. It's in transition, right? Mm. So to speak. Right. Almost the same thing. 
Right? It's in the process of growing. You're in the process of getting your afro. <laughs> Right. Yeah. You're in the you're in the transition. In certain areas. Maybe not on the town. Rico from Oregon asked. Uh, um, he wants to know if the slides are available. Listen, if you email me, um, I will send you the, those slides on the transition period, so you can have them. As long as you have a power something that'll you know play PowerPoint, a, a slide reader. Uh, I can send you those PowerPoint slides. Just send me an email. Uh, Berean Bible Church VA. Berean Bible Church VA, as in Virginia, at gmail.com. Um, <clears throat> Bob, Bob Krushank is saying that Hebrews 9.27 seems to support this idea that wasn't certainly restricted to just them. As long as people continue to die, they'll continue to see judgment. People are going to die. They're going to be judged. I mean, that's just going to go on happening. Like I said, we don't want to put that in 8070 and say, okay, that's it. It's all done. It's all over. No. It, right. There's no death. Well, that's cool because we don't have to. That's weird because my mom just died like two months ago. No. I know. That, that's what I mean. It, it, can, it can really get ridiculous, people. It really can with people not understanding this whole thing. Okay, we the Berean Bible Church cyber audience appreciate the McCormacks too. There you go. How about that? You're loved, all right? All right, Shelly asks, uh, how can they be, she says, what, how do futurists justify saying someone's in a better place? <laughs> Shelly, I don't care who you are, when you die, you're in a better place. Everybody says that, okay? Maybe the rottenest, you know, person that ever lived on the, you know, mass murder, you know, killed his mother, whatever. They're in a, be they're in a better place. Oh, I'm never. Have you ever been to a funeral and someone got up and said, "This person was the biggest scoundrel that ever lived. We're glad he's dead. We're glad it's no. When you die, you're wonderful. All right. So they're always in a better place, and they don't have to stick with the scriptures on that. They just they make them say what they want, you know. And that's the thing. If someone dies as a believer. And if you believe the second coming hasn't happened, they're not in heaven. They're in a waiting place, waiting room, waiting at purgatory. <laughs> Veronica. I was actually was really surprised, but they are starting to sacrifice animals again. And they on the temple now, yeah. Well, they're raising, they're, they're, they're raising red heifers. Well, how can they do that? Veronica's saying that Israel now they're sacrificing again. Here's the problem. Who has to make the sacrifice? A priest. Okay? How do you be a priest? You've got to have a genealogy to prove your lineage. There's no genealogy because when the temple was destroyed, all that... See, God took care of all this stuff. And again, they got an obstacle in their way. It's called the mosque, that temple there, the mosque that's there. Okay, they got to get that off the holy ground so they can build the temple. So, 
It's going to be a little while before they get it done. Yeah. One thing that really stuck, stood out today, which you've said a thousand times, but you know sometimes it just don't sink in. Uh, but it goes to Bible ignorance or, or historical ignorance. Is that most people don't understand that the the, you know, the um, Israel was all about sacrifice. And that sacrifice ended in AD 70. So does that, if you look at Israel existing only to worship God and sacrifice to him, and that sacrifice is ended, then that's the end of the end of Israel. The end of the sacrifice is there's no need. And if you would think if God was sovereign, that in two thousand years he could have rebuilt arranged, he rebuilt the temple three times. Right, if he wanted to rebuild, yeah. he could have definitely rebuilt it, but he's done with it. So I said, it's, it's over, it's finished. The sacrifice were pointing to Christ. Since Christ has come, we don't need any more sacrifices. We don't need those. They're fulfilled. Pointed to him, and they're done. Alright, I'm not sure where this starts. Um, Junior from Niagara Falls I'd like to get your take on the spiritual law of sowing and reaping. What do you do, and the way you do it shall be done to you, compared to other judgments? I think a lot of sowing and reaping has to do with right here, right now. Okay, if you're a Christian, you act like a jerk, you treat people like a jerk, you're going to reap the rewards of that. If you're a Christian right here, right now, and you're living in sin, you're going to pay, you're going to get the reward that sin brings, which is... It's an evil pay, you know, taskmaster, and you will pay a severe price. All right, and you look at, you know, what we've been discovering is it's not only you that pay when you sin; those around you pay. Your family pays. Your close friends. Everybody pays. All right, sin has a payday. So that's the sowing and reaping. When we get to heaven, it's not about sowing and reaping. It's about you're receiving what Christ has paid for. It's yours. You're here. You're a child of the King. You're gonna stand before the Lord. And he's going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And he's going to say, you could have done a little better. <laughs> the skin of your... Saved as yet by far. Yeah, oh, you just got in. You just made it. No, no, nobody's going to just make it because, like I said, you have the righteousness of Christ. That's not just making it. That's, that's going in like you own the place. Really? Because you do own the place. You go in there, you act confident, you act... Because like, I belong here. I'm as righteous as my Lord. That is so amazing.